Welcome to the All of Life podcast from Redemption Church Tempe, where we have conversations on faith, culture, theology, and beyond to help us live all of life, all for Jesus. Let's jump into today's episode. Welcome to Redemption Tempe's All of Life podcast here, where we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. My name is Josh Butler. I'm one of the lead pastors here at Redemption Tempe, and I'm so excited that we have a special guest with us here today, Jeremy Treat. Uh, Jeremy is a friend. He is a pastor, the pastor of Reality Los Angeles, uh, Reality LA in Los Angeles, California. Uh, He's also the author of some really excellent books um, on the cross and the kingdom. Uh, His book, The Crucified King uh, is actually one of my favorite books on the cross that I've ever read. It's one I recommend highly to folks all the time. Uh, But I've really enjoyed getting to see, uh, getting to meet Jeremy and get to see over the years, man, just what God's doing in your life, man, the life of your guys' community as you guys are pressing into faithfulness to Jesus and his kingdom there in Los Angeles. Uh, Welcome, Jeremy. It's great to have you here with us. Thank you, man. It's an it's an honor to be here. I love the time with you. I count you as a good friend, and uh, I'm I'm cheering Redemption Church on from afar. So I'm so grateful for you all and the good work that the Lord's doing through you. Awesome, awesome. Well, we have Jeremy on today to talk about the cross and specifically atonement. Uh, now, if that's a big word you might be unfamiliar with, uh, the word atonement essentially is uh, looking at. What is the cross, the cross of Christ, of Jesus? How does it work? Um, one way that some would describe it is you think of the words at one mint in, in that word phrase atonement. How does the work of Christ at the cross reconcile us, make us one again, united again to God where we were distanced, alienated before? How does the cross accomplish our reconciliation and atonement uh, for our sin to bring us back into communion with God. Uh, Jeremy, as I mentioned, you've written one of my favorite books on that, and you're The Crucified King, and you're currently working on another book that's going to be coming out upon that theme. And I was like, man, there's no one I would rather talk to to just help us dig into this, where I think for many of us as Christians, we can kind of know uh, that we need the cross, but not really understand exactly how it works and all, or what even atonement is. And so I wonder if you could maybe share for us just why why did you write this book, whether not only The Crucified King, but now the new book that you're working on right now. Uh, It takes a lot of time to pour into a book. Why are you writing this book? And why does the doctrine of atonement matter for the church? Yeah, I mean, I think that at the most basic level, we're, we're talking about the climax of the biblical story right here. I mean, this is the heart of the gospel. Like it just doesn't get any more important than this. And so when we talk about theology, it's not kind of going beyond the basics into all the advanced stuff. It's going deeper into understanding the riches. I mean, we're saying, what what does it mean when we say that Christ died for our sins? And I think this is incredibly relevant for the church, though. I mean, I, I love theology and I love going really deep, but I think this is also really practical and timely. And the church right now is experiencing this this storm, right? There's a whirlwind of all these justice issues and people leaving the church and wondering what it looks like to follow Jesus in our society today. And I think the cross is at the heart of what we need to hear. I mean, I think about a church in Corinth in the first century that first and second Corinthians were letters to. And think about what was going on in this church. They were divided. They were, they were dividing over their favorite preachers. They're literally suing one another. They're getting drunk during communion. Someone's hooking up with their stepmom. They have sexual hmm. immorality. Like the church was a mess. Hmm. And yet 
what does Paul say to them right out of the gate in his letter to 1 Corinthians is you need to hear the message of Christ crucified. Mm. You think, wow, like he could have talked to them about like, I want you to like learn these three lessons about unity and you need to go to this program for alcoholism or, you know, and all those things can be good. But he says, you need to understand the, the wisdom and the power of the cross. And that was, that was really their problem. Mm. They, they saw the cross, they were seeing the cross as weakness and as foolishness because that's, mm. that's, that, that, those are the cultural narratives in their society. He says that the cross is weakness to the Jews and it's foolishness mm. to the Gentiles. And so he's tapping into these cultural narratives there that for, for the Greeks, they lived by a narrative of wisdom right? The good life is a philosopher contemplating. And you look at someone dying and bleeding on a cross, a, a form of Roman execution. That's not wisdom. That's foolishness. It's the Greek word is, is moriah. It, it's where we get the word moron. Like that's moronic to believe that it would be good for somebody dying on the cross. And then the, the Romans, or, or sorry, the, uh, the Jews had this cultural narrative of power and really political power. They wanted to see change coming through political means and overtaking Rome. And so they looked at someone like Jesus. They said, we don't want him to die for his enemies, but to defeat his enemies. And so Paul undermines all of that. He subverts it with this message of the cross saying through the lens of faith, this is the wisdom and power of God. It's not just something you believe. It's something that shapes everything that you see. I mean, wisdom is about how we see the world, power is about how we walk through the world. And he's saying to that church in Corinth and to the church in Los Angeles and to the church in Tempe, that the cross is the wisdom and power of God. Wow. Wow. That's powerful. man. So the cross is the wisdom and power of God, even though to the outside world, it might look like foolishness, even moronic. I'd never heard that. That's, that's a powerful uh, image of how that felt to them. For us today, you talked about, man, they wanted Christ who would defeat their enemies. And yet Jesus died for his enemies. And that word atonement seems to get to like him dying for us, but that may be an unfamiliar mm -hmm. word to many people listening. So I'm or can you talk a little about what is atonement? We're talking about yeah. atonement and Jesus dying for us, the cross. What, what is the word atonement speaking to? Yeah. So you mentioned this a little bit at the beginning, but um, I mean, atonement literally just means at one minute. So you got two parties who are divided and to bring them back together and make them at one. And that's what atonement is about. And I would say traditionally the doctrine of atonement is about how Christ deals with our sin through the cross. And what I would want to, what I would want to, I want to affirm that and then expand it a little bit in a couple of ways. One, I would say um, we're talking about how Christ deals with our sin through the cross but we have to also understand how the cross fits within the broader spectrum of Jesus's ministry from, uh, from the incarnation to his ministry, then to the resurrection, the ascension, the session of Christ. And then I would also say expanding that traditional understanding of atonement as well. It's not just about how God makes sinners at one with himself, but also how God is bringing at one of heaven and earth. I mean, so when you when you think about Second Corinthians five, it's in Christ God was reconciling the world to Himself. In Colossians one, it's He's making peace by the blood of the cross in heaven and on earth. And so I like to think of it of 
through the cross, God is reconciling sinners to himself, and he's bringing about the at-one-ment of heaven and earth. He's wow. bringing all things together in yeah. Christ. So when we talk about atonement, that's what we're getting at, is, is how God accomplishes that through a bloody, grueling death, and then what that does accomplish for us and for creation. Wow. So what sin has kind of fractured and fragmented and torn apart and destroyed, God is bringing back together in Christ under the cross at one minute. He's taking yeah. these things that become separated, divided, fractured, hostile, fragmented, and pulling them back together, reuniting their diversity into union and making them one again. That, that's that's yeah, powerful. Exactly. It, well, and that's where like the sin, it, it's really important to understand sin in the right way, right? Because if, if you have a narrow view of sin, then you're going to have a narrow view of the cross hmm. because you have to understand um, the, the dilemma in order to point someone to the remedy, right? Hmm. So if you only see sin as fracturing our relationship with God, which of course it does, and that's at the heart of it, then you will only see the atonement about restoring our relationship with God. But if you recognize that our sin not only fractures our relationship with God, but it shatters the goodness of creation, it wrecks the shalom of the world, then we also see that, okay, if that's this problem, then the remedy is addressing all of that. So it starts to expand our understanding of what Christ accomplished on the cross. That's awesome. That's really cool. Yeah, I love this image. I remember years ago reading Augustine and talking about sin and humanity is almost like this... uh, china doll like doll with this unity that was beautiful but precious but fragile and like sin essentially shattering humanity like that throwing that doll to the ground and we've been shattered into Mm. all these fragmented pieces but in christ he's reconciling us to god he's also reconciling he's putting the doll back together he's reuniting fragmented and broken in humanity and in creation like as you said colossians one jesus is the savior who is reconciling heaven and earth uh making peace through his blood shed on the cross, like restoring creation. That's really powerful. So there are a lot of different theories about how exactly that is working. Uh, I'd be curious, uh, which theory is the right one? (laughs) That's the way the question can often come up. But maybe maybe for those who are unfamiliar, what are some of the different theories that are out there for how the cross is working? And talk a little bit about how... Yeah, how you see those theories interacting. Yeah, I mean, like, this is the way that most people have conversations in the doctrine of atonement is, okay, which theory is the right one? And these theories get pit. And so you have penal substitution is a theory of the atonement. And you have Christus Victor and moral, moral exemplary and these other different theories. And they're usually set up as um, either or scenarios. So either... Christ bore the penalty for our sins, or he defeated the devil, or he provided an example for us. Mm. I want to blow that approach out of the water and mm. say, these are not either ors. Uh, God never God never asks us to choose between truths. Mm. And we need to be able to have a holistic understanding of what Christ accomplished on the cross. And here's what's actually interesting about this. Um, talking about the atonement through theories is a is a really recent phenomenon in the history of the church. Up until the 1850s, nobody talked about theories of the atonement. And if you look back through church history, if you look at it, um, Athanasius, Irenaeus, Augustine, Aquinas, uh, Luther, and Calvin, 
And they're talking about all these different aspects and dimensions of the atonement. And mm. what happens is you get to the enlightenment and you get kind of this scientific way of thinking, and then you get the university system rising and, and theologians want to start, you know, being impressive and fitting in in the university system. And so they, they take this like secular scientific language and they start applying it to doctrine and you end up with these theories of the atonement that are usually like seen as self-sufficient, exclusive to other theories. And it's led the church to this place where I think, honestly, we, it, it's, it truncates the gospel. Hmm. It's Christ either did this or he did that. So hmm. what I want to do is, is blow that up and be able to say the cross is a multidimensional accomplishment within the story of the kingdom of God. And when, man, when you have this story that begins in a garden and ends in a kingdom and you see the fullness of that context, then you start to see all the different dimensions of the cross. So through his death on the cross, um, Jesus uh, bears judgment in our place. He defeats the devil. He, he reveals God's love. He cleanses us of our shame. He forgives us of our guilt. He he comes to be with us in his presence as a new temple. I mean, on and on and on propitiation, redemption, mm. expiation, glorification, mm. like the, the dimensions of what Christ accomplishes on the cross are really never ending. Mm. And so I, th I think what we need to have is a, a fuller, more robust, um, multi-dimensional understanding of what Christ accomplished on the cross. There is just more depth um, to be explored than we could ever imagine in this. That's awesome. Yeah, I love what you're saying. So for clarity, uh, kind of some definition for those who might not be familiar. So when you're talking about like uh, some of these theories, penal substitution would be the idea that Christ bears our punishment or our penalty. That's kind of where you get the penal uh, in our place as our substitute. So in that, yeah. in that model, like we're the bad guy, we're the sinners and it's our sin, our punishment that he's bearing to atone for us in our place. Or you could have another model or a theory like Christus Victor, where it is mean Christ is the victor. He's accomplishing victory over Satan and the principalities and powers that oppress us. So there we're not so much to the uh, we're, we're under the oppression of these powers that are kind of external to us or the moral exemplar theory, like Christ is an example of something like sacrificial love. And what I hear you saying, Jeremy, that I love is like some people are asking, like, well, is it Jesus bearing our punishment in our place or is it Jesus defeating the principal Satan and the evil powers, or is it Jesus being an example of sacrificial love? And you're going, yes. And amen. <laughs> like it's, it's yeah, all those that, yeah. that actually, that's a, this multifaceted accomplishment. Part of the beauty and glory of the cross is that you can look at it from so many different angles to just explore this endless majesty of Christ's sacrifice yeah. for us. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's, it's, it's upholding the whole counsel of God. Right. And and being able to recognize the the immeasurable riches of God's grace in Christ. And then I think I think also a part of this Josh is that in different cultural contexts we are drawn to different aspects of mm. the cross. And so I mean I'll never forget when I lived in Chicago I was teaching this class on the New Testament and um we and this was just like a class of of people in the church and we got to um, talking about the meaning of the cross. And I asked everyone the question, what did Christ accomplish on the cross? 
And there were several people in this room and all the people from like a Western cultural context, mostly American, um, basically said Jesus died to forgive us of our sins. Right. And then there was a few people who were from um, Southeast Asia and they all wrote Jesus died to conquer evil powers. Hmm. And it was so fascinating thinking about that of, okay, like Hmm. in, in our Western American context, we don't think evil powers exist, mm. right? Like, like when I'm reading through the scripture and, and, and I know that Christians would say they believe that, but yes. that's not the air that we breathe, right? We live mm. in this like secularized culture that says, you know, uh, what you see is what you get. There is no spiritual realm. And so I'm much, I'm much, much less likely to lean into those parts of scripture and to be and for them to be able, coming from cultures where they're saying, oh, no, this is a part of everyday culture. We're very aware that wow. there's this spiritual battle going on. And so for them, like they, they were sensitive to that where I, I wasn't and so many other people weren't. I mean, and here's another example of this is that um, there you have some cultures that are more honor and shame based, right? Yeah. Like a lot of Asian cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think every culture has honor and shame and guilt in them. But sociologists talk about this and some are certainly more honor and shame based. Mm-hmm. Now in the West, when you hear people talk about the cross, people almost always go towards guilt categories. Yes. And that's certainly, that's certainly biblical, right? You have a lot of that throughout scripture, courtroom analogies, justification, right? Um, but uh, the the Bible talks a lot more about honor and shame than it does about guilt. In fact, the Bible talks far more about shame than it does guilt. And yet I, I could show you stacks of systematic theologies that never mention shame once um, because it's not in front of us in our cultural context as much. So there's a lot of different ways that that we have blind spots and that we reduce the cross just to one accomplishment and we need to be able to see all the accomplishments and that that's honestly where i mean global theology is an incredible opportunity the doctrine of the atonement say man i need to learn from some like chinese theologians and korean yeah. theologians and japanese theologians about what it means that christ bore our shame that's awesome. Yeah. Just to connect the dots, you know, some of you, for some of you listening, uh, you may remember uh, Jackson Wu is kind of the pen name he goes by, but uh, I remember here at the church who wrote Reading Romans Through Eastern Eyes and gave a talk here recently at one of the first Wednesday events on on that and honor shame and connecting those, the, the powerful thing that we often, it's there, all you got to do is go on Twitter or go online. We, we got honor shame in the weather. We just don't we don't we don't recognize it we're kind of oblivious to it but like you said cultures that are more honor shame based where it's more pertinent and the power that the gospel speaks in areas that we might have some cultural blinders on or not be as sensitive to and yet are very real and in what christ is accomplishing at the cross that's i love that image too that like it reminds me of like i don't know like deep 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 sea diving or you know seeing this place like these things that people that that maybe some people had never seen for generations, but it's still this glory that's there waiting. And the cross feels like there are these things that some people have maybe never, We there are aspects of the cross that I might never have seen because of my experience and kind of my eyes or whatever. That doesn't mean the glory is not there in terms of what Christ right. has accomplished that others around the world might encounter and that are actually, you know, we see biblically in scripture once, when, once 
It's oh really, yeah. Yeah. No, it's huge. I mean, even just think about like wisdom, right? Like most people don't connect wisdom to the cross, but to mm. think of first Corinthians one and how that's saying there's this counterintuitive wisdom in the kingdom of God. And the mm. cross is what flips it upside down to where all of a sudden we start to, we start to recognize that greatness is redefined by service. Mm. True power is shown through love and sacrifice, right? It's just like, Yes. I mean, there's, there's so much more to the cross. And so I don't want to, I certainly don't want to minimize justification, forgiveness of sins. I would say that's the heart, but it's not the whole. Um, there, the accomplishments of the cross are, are greater than we can imagine. And we will be worshiping the slain lamb who's enthroned for all of eternity yes. uh, for the infinite uh, glory of what he's accomplished for us. Wow, that's awesome. Well, let's talk specifically about uh, Christus Victor and penal substitution, because these are two that, you know, while there are a lot of different models, approaches, language, like these are two that tend to get a lot of airtime. And I even know personally many in our culture, even our church, who have grappled with, man, how do I make sense of these? Uh, now, again, just to summarize, Christus Victor is this idea of Christ's victory over the powers and Satan and the enemy that oppress us. Uh, and whereas penal substitution, Christ bearing our punishment for our sin in our place as our substitute. And these often, I've found on a popular level, get kind of pitted against each other. Um, yeah. my, my book, The Pursuing God, a big heart of it, the middle section was really attempting to uh, defend penal substitution for some of the caricatures that are popular out there. And, and one of the things that I loved and was really inspired by your book, your work, The Crucified King, was you didn't just say, hey, it's both of these. You actually showed how they relate to one another, how you don't get Christus Victor without penal substitution. And penal substitution, you don't understand what Christ is actually doing without the telos or the orientation, the goal of Christus Victor. So could you maybe talk a bit about, first, maybe what is the tension that some people are grappling with between those two? Yeah. And how do you see penal substitution and Christus Victor relating to one another in terms of what Christ is doing at the cross? Yeah, yeah, that's good. And 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 even to give a little broader framework for that too, I mean, it's just talking about this multidimensional view of the atonement. In acknowledging that, then we have to move towards integration. Mm. It's it's we can't overreact to one dimensional views that are reductionistic to just saying it's everything, but having no kind of balance and integration, because you see that throughout scripture, this interweaving of what Christ accomplished on the cross. And so I think Christus Victor and penal substitution is just a classic and tragic example of two truths being pit against one another. And, and so uh, you have different camps. Some people will say it's one or the other. It's not about penal substitution. It's about Christus Victor. And then you'll get people kind of recognizing, okay, you don't have to choose. And they just like uphold them in tension, right? Like, okay, well, we believe both of them, but we have no idea how they relate. And what I try and do in the crucified King is, is be able to say, it's not just upholding them, but recognizing how intertwined these actually mm -hmm. are. And so I think the key question to ask is, okay, yes, Christ defeats the enemy on the, um, Christ defeats his enemy, but how does he do so? Like, how does, how is Christ victorious over the devil? Is it just through naked power? Does he just outstrength him? Is he, does he deceive the devil? Like, how does he accomplish this victory? Mm. And when you look to the scriptures, the answer is clear. It's by 
bearing the penalty of sinners in their place, Hmm. which then removes the grounds of accusation for the devil. So, I mean, the devil's power over us, he, you know, he, he tempts, he allures and he accuses. And so when the devil comes and says, you're a sinner and you don't deserve God, he's actually right in saying that. But when Christ bears the penalty for my sins and I receive the righteousness of Christ, then, then Satan has been disarmed of his mm. accusatory power. So that if he comes to accuse me and says, you're, you're a sinner, no, I'm washed by the blood of Christ. I'm clean. I'm righteous. I'm holy because of what Christ has done for me. So, I mean, you see this in Colossians 2 um, so explicitly. In Colossians 2.15, it says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So this glorious passage, triumphing over open shame, he put his enemy, but how does he do that? Well, the two verses before it explain that he forgives us of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands by nailing it to the cross. Mm. So Christ bears our debt. Uh, he dies in our place and, and through death, he conquers death through love and wisdom and sacrifice, he conquers the father of lies and the one who's driven by hatred. Um, that's what's so beautiful about it is it's not just a, he doesn't just overpower Satan. Mm. Um, it's not like a cosmic accompli- wrestling match or something. Yeah. And there is no cosmic battle, right? Yes. God's all powerful. So yeah. that kind of dualism um, is even a wrong starting point. So mm. he conquers Satan through self-giving love. And that's just this, this beautiful foundation for the kingdom of God, because the cross is the victory of the kingdom of God, but it's a victory that happens through sacrifice. It's a power that's shown through love. Um, And when you start to see that, it feels silly to say, wait, so did he do this or did he do that? Right. Um, Or, or, or it even feels silly to say, but which one is the real meaning of the cross? Right. When it's like, no, they're, they're obviously both important and we need to understand how they relate. And, and w- then what I would say is that's just an example of, um, of just two dimensions of the cross. Yes. I mean, you can do that with how does Christ dealing with our guilt relate to how he deals with our shame? There's integration mm. involved there. Yeah. Uh, first John, first John two ties together propitiation and following Jesus as example, right? Wow. So, I mean, that's all right there together in that one passage. So being able to start integrating these, you just start to recognize that this is a beautiful web um, that's that's really meant to not draw us deeper into debates, although there's a place for that, but ultimately lead us into worship of saying, wow, what Christ accomplished is is greater than I even imagined. Wow. Yeah, I'm just as you're talking, I'm getting this image of like a diamond, you know, like this multifaceted and there's just glory, the speed. It's one thing, but there are all these different angles you can look at it to see yeah. how they relate and fit together. And I, I love your phrase. You mentioned, yeah, that uh, penal substitution is the means and Christus Victor is the end in terms of how they relate yeah. that Jesus bearing our punishment is the means by which this victory over sin and death yeah. and Satan all are accomplished. And I, it reminds me of something you said earlier about how. We have to put these back within the biblical story as a whole. And 
the story helps make sense of how they fit together. It reminds me of um, just how sin and death and all entered the world. You know, when you think of Satan having a foothold in the world, it's because of human sin was the means through which he yeah. accomplished the end of this this power. You think of Adam and Eve and our rebellion, like like if if we hadn't sinned, he would have no foothold. He might still be in rebellion against God, but he'd have no yep. inroad into creation. And yet, because of our sin, it's unleashed destruction and death, and it's unleashed Satan's power and reign as the prince of the ruler of the air or whatever, you know, like, so yeah, mm-hmm. like, like the, within the story, it makes sense that these, these two are related, even in their origin of sin being the means through which the end of Satan's rule has been unleashed yep. in the world. But now by Jesus bearing our sin, his kingdom is yeah, yeah established. In yeah, it's good. Well, and I, I think like even mentioning going back to the idea of the story is so important because what I try and do in my, and the book that I'm working on now is um, is try and say, okay, to understand anything, you have to understand its context, and and a story gives context, right? So when we talk about the Bible, there's a lot of different ways that you can tell the story, but I think telling the Bible as a story of the kingdom of God um, is a really powerful way. I mean, honestly, that's the way that Jesus did it. I like to play that card. Um, but when Jesus began his ministry in Mark 1:15, the first thing he says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand, right? The story is coming to a climax. And so one of the things for me, and this was like a lot of the impetus of writing the crucified King was when I was studying the cross, I, I, I felt so confused because I felt like I had this, I had to choose between kingdom and cross. Mm. And w- what I saw in my experience in the church was that you have some people who cling to the cross and others who champion the kingdom, mm. but usually it's one to the exclusion of the other. Mm. And, and then you even have, and you, you still see this today, you have whole kind of crowds building around. So you have the cross crowd that's mm. usually about like personal salvation. And then yeah. you have the kingdom crowd that's much more about like activism and yeah. justice. And you kind of feel like you have to choose between those. Mm. And so I... I set out to to try and understand that because it just felt wrong. It felt wow. deeply wrong to me. Um, and even as I looked into academics, into into scholarship, um, I saw a lot of that. I mean, there's a lot of New Testament scholars who talk a lot about the kingdom of God and then systematic theologians. They don't talk about the kingdom of God unless they're talking about eschatology. Um, mm. And so, I mean, that that was what drove writing the crucified king and and what I really learned during that three years of research and writing with that is that the, the kingdom and the cross um, are inseparable and they come together ultimately in Christ, who is the King who brings his kingdom by way of the cross. And so like that story of helping us understand the cross is so powerful and it helps us understand the kingdom because if the kingdom comes through the cross then that means that we have a cross-shaped kingdom and and we live, we, we're following the king. And what did the king tell us to do? To take up our crosses, right? And we show the power of the kingdom, the glory of the kingdom now through suffering well and sacrifice and service in the same way that our king himself did. And so to me, that's that's really important framework to understand the cross and just how it fits within the story of the Bible as a whole. 
Wow, dude, that's really powerful. I had never made that connection. You know, I've seen, you know, you can feel those camps or kind of these trajectories, maybe to broad brushstrokes, but generally you've got kind of, you know, maybe one trajectory where people might lean towards just sort of personal holiness and it's me and God and I'm kind of over here in this camp, but I don't really care much about the world as a temptation you know, or the society or things outside. And then you can have maybe like kind of the justice crowd, you know, that, that is more about yeah. activism, changing the world, but at times can be like not as attuned or attentive to like the need for personal holiness in my life with God and all that. And, you know, you, you can see those trajectories at times, but I don't know. I made the connection to how some of that bifurcation can be split and like a misunderstanding of the cross and the kingdom and how they're integrally mm -hmm. related and intertwined with one another. Um, oh yeah, and it seems like it boils down to like your uh, title itself, the crucified king. Like the the king, it's like the, yeah. the king and the crucifixion. Like they they mutually interpret one another. And I remember Levin in your book. Could you talk a bit about one of the ways you demonstrate how they're related? Is going the theme of victory through sacrifice in the biblical story. Mm -hmm. That yeah, this is not something where like. God was doing one things one way throughout the Old Testament. And then right. Jesus comes along, oh, I'm going to change it up now and do things different. I'll, I'll do victory through sacrifice at the cross, but I've been doing something else throughout history. You're going, no, actually, this is the biblical story is a story of we see victory through sacrifice again and again. Uh, could you maybe maybe give us some lenses? What are some of the, some stories or some places in Scripture that we might not be familiar seeing through the that lens that, that could help us see this theme of victory through sacrifice yeah, I mean, I think it's I, I think it is a thread throughout the whole Bible for sure. And it, it starts at the, in, in the very first pages of Scripture. I mean, Genesis 3.15, you have in Genesis 1 and 2, of course, you have creation. And in Genesis 3, you have the fall. And God's response then is he curses the serpent in the land. And and he's he says to the serpent that the seed of the woman is going to crush your head but will be bruised in the process. And so from the, so God doesn't give up on his creation. Um, he, he, he makes this promise early on that he is going to defeat the enemy and restore his creation. But this promise of victory comes uh, with, uh, with suffering involved in it. Mm. And so that's from the very beginning of this plan of redemption unfolding, that there's going to be a victory but there's going to be suffering involved. Mm. And then you just see that unfold. I mean, in Genesis 12, he tells Abraham that uh, I'm going to bless you and through your family, uh, uh, the whole world's going to be blessed. But he also acknowledges that there's going to be people who curse you as a part of this, right? Mm. Uh, you see this with Joseph. He ascends to royalty, but his ascension to royalty is characterized by suffering. And mm. then his reign is exercised over his brothers with forgiveness. Mm. Um, you see this in the Exodus story, God delivers his people, but at the heart of this victory is a sacrificial lamb, right? Mm. Whose, whose, whose blood is shed in place of the firstborn. Wow. You see it in King David, he's King David, right? Uh, but his, his reign is characterized by righteous suffering. You see that in Psalm 22 and humility, even in him being chosen as the king, as the younger brother, uh, in the book of Zechariah, it talks about how, um, God's kingdom is going to come, but it's going to come through this humble king, right? Who wow. comes and rules over the earth and redeems people with the blood of his covenant. That's Zechariah 9. And then, of course, the, the greatest example of this is in Isaiah 52 and 53. And a lot of people know about Isaiah 53 
suffering, by his wounds we are healed. But they forget the context of Isaiah 52, where it talks about the kingdom of God and how God is going to bring this new exodus. He's going to establish his reign. It's good news. It's the gospel of the kingdom. But then it turns in Isaiah 53, behold my servant. So the victory of the kingdom is going to come through the suffering of the servant. And so that theme of victory through sacrifice is just, um, it's woven throughout the whole narrative. So at one level, you can look at the cross and say, God is a, is a storyteller who's been leading us up to this. But then you can also look at the disciples and be like, and they didn't see it at all, right? Mm, yeah. And, and you know, it's, I think it's a good question to say, why did they not get it? Especially uh, when Jesus predicted his death and resurrection three times, Mark wow. 9, 10, and 11. He predicts his death and resurrection three times, and they still didn't get it. They still thought mm. he lost when he, when he died, and they abandoned him. But I think I think it's the same reason that the world thinks that the cross is foolish today. I think it's the same reason that we're tempted to think that worldly success is better than sacrificial service, you know, mm. because our flesh and our sin um, draw us to that. But you, you can see, I think, the wisdom of the cross just uh, embedded throughout the story of Scripture. That's awesome, man. That's so powerful to just see it as not, not like this tangent or this occasional here and there but go do that's that's it's the thread like it's the pattern that god's story is 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 woven around is, is this theme of victory yeah. through sacrifice this is a bit of a side note i i don't remember if you mentioned this specifically but i would be curious just to hear your thoughts on my mind goes to leviticus as well and kind of going that that's a book of the bible many people feel intimidated by kind of going dude there's all these yeah. bloody animals and sacrifices and things and you're kind of going i don't, I don't know what to do with this this feels like ancient old school ritual that I don't quite get or connect with and all. Um, but as you're talking about victory through sacrifice, man, it makes me think there, there may be some connections or threads there. What, how do you see some of those seems like the temple, the sacrificial system, maybe just broadly speaking, how, is there a grid that you think could be encouraging for us to kind of see how that piece of the biblical story points to the cross points us to Jesus? And Oh yeah. I mean, I, I don't think you can understand the cross apart from the book of Leviticus. Mm. So I, I, I know that it's it's not easy reading. Um, I mean, I'm actually reading through Leviticus right now in my just devotional time, it, and, and it's not easy reading. It's like you're sprinkling <laughs> blood on you're sprinkling yeah. blood on the big toe and splattering it on the walls, and like all you know, all this strange <laughs> stuff that feels so weird to us in our mm. contemporary society, but you you really can't understand the cross about apart from the sacrificial system and the temple mm -hmm. and and so i mean for john the baptist to point to jesus and say behold the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world mm -hmm. that makes no sense apart from the sacrificial system mm -hmm. and i think we take that for granted today when we hear phrases like he died for our sins mm -hmm. or in our place but to understand what's happening on the day of atonement, right? Mm. Of how the, the high priest is, is laying his hands on this sacrificial animal and it's symbolizing the transference of the, the people's mm. sin on and that animal dying and bearing that penalty so that they don't have to and, and how that makes atonement. It deals with the sin in such a way that makes sinful people right with a holy God. So, I mean, 
understanding Jesus as our, our sacrifice, our lamb, forgiveness of sins, that's all rooted in the book of Leviticus. And then the temple is an incredibly important theme, um, obviously throughout the Old Testament, but at the cross. Mm. I mean, when, when Jesus, uh, it, it's really significant that Jesus clears out the temple um, and then he curses the fig tree essentially showing that the, the temple is, is, is null and void. Like it's, it's, mm. it's, it's lost its effect in what it's supposed to do. And the temple is meant to be the dwelling place of God. Mm. That it's, it's where God resides. And so when Jesus dies on the cross, what does it say? The, the, the curtain temple, which is most likely the, the, the curtain veil of the Holy of Holies is torn from top to bottom. And I mean, think about the meaning of this. If, mm -hmm. if you were in the Old Testament, if you wanted to be in the presence of God, you go to the temple. And then within the temple, you have stronger manifestations of God's presence. And the Holy of Holies is the strongest manifestation of God's presence. Only mm -hmm. the high priest could go in there once a year. And we're told that when Christ died, the veil of the Holy of Holies tears down the middle symbolizing this unleashing of the presence of God. Wow. So to think, I mean, to think that Christ dying on the cross for our sins ushers us into the Holy of Holies. And wow. to, so that means that today, if you want to be in the presence of God, you don't have to go to a temple. Wow. We actually, the church is the temple. God wow. dwells within us. And that's, that's because of what Christ accomplished on the cross. And then what's amazing, you get to Revelation 21 and 22. And what are we told? We're told there's no temple in the new creation. Wow. Why? Because God dwells with his people. And, and you have that refrain of you will be my people and I will be your God. God is dwelling with us. And there's this, there's this um, strange uh, uh, detail in revelation when it talks about the city of jerusalem descending on the earth and it's strange because it says that it's a perfect cube the dimensions and it's like mm, why would it say that it just yeah. feels kind of weird right and the reason i think it says it is because well let's think what else was a perfect cube in the bible the mm. holy of holies wow so you know when, when you're when you're reading through you know exodus and leviticus and you're reading like the dimensions of the tabernacle and the temple and it feels so boring well, you read, oh, it's the Holy of Holies, 15 by 15 by 15. It's a perfect wow. cube. Wow. And then you get to Revelation and what's descending is the city. So I think what wow. that means is the whole new creation is the Holy of Holies. Wow. Like it's gone from being this Every, little room in the temple, yes. this small room in the temple of Israel to being the earth now. Like the earth is flooded. The, whole, the, the new God. heaven and the new earth is the Holy of Holies. And we are in the presence of God, completely unhindered by sin. Wow. And, and that's by Christ absorbing um, our penalty and judgment in our place that we might be ushered into his presence. That's so powerful. And so I love what you're saying is like, man, the temple and the whole temple system and the sacrifices, the temple and the sacrificial system are all ultimately pointing to Christ, his work on the cross in his crucifixion mm -hmm. and his victory, his kingdom victory. Uh, I was reading um, one one book I had loved a couple years ago, but was uh, Michael Morales, uh, Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord. Uh, but it, it was this book on Leviticus. And, and or this is a theology nerd moment for a second for listeners. We can just hang in for a second. You know, but he, he was talking about like the structure of the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible and how they are a 
chiasm. A chiasm is kind of like you have these bookends that work their way in towards the middle. They kind of each end mirrors each other and you get to the center and that's kind of the main point. And it was most biblical scholars would agree like the first five books of the Bible are this chiasm and they work their way to the center is Leviticus 16, which is the day of atonement, wow. which he's going that mm. what, what, what does that mean? He's going, well, what it means is the point of the Pentateuch, like the highlight, the central message the Pentateuch is trying to convey the beginning of Scripture, the first five books of the Bible is atonement. And he, he unpacks that theme as being union with God's presence through the shedding of blood. Like the point of, mm. you know, the biblical story is union with God's presence through the shedding of blood. Like that's not like a tangent in the story. That's like the center of the story. Like what the whole biblical story ends up pointing to is union with God's presence through the shedding of blood, which is ultimately through the cross. And we, as you're saying, we become the temple. We become those united with God's presence through Christ's work and, and all in his kingdom victory. Man. My mind's wow, just that's powerful. You know, so yeah, and my heart is getting ignited. You know, thinking about man, Jesus, the glory of what you've done. Well, I'm wondering, okay, let's let's get practical for a minute now. Jeremy, what would you say, like your counsel for us, your vision for us? What does it mean for us to be a people of both the cross and the kingdom? If these are these things that can kind of get pulled apart from one another, but how do we be mm. a cruciform people and a kingdom people as this yeah living temple no. church reality yeah it's so good i i think that um i think we have to understand that we live in between the already and the not yet of the kingdom of god right so what i mean by that is the kingdom has come but it has not yet been fully consummated and it won't be until christ returns and so we live in this tension and in that tension we follow the crucified and resurrected savior and so what, what that means is we should expect victory and healing and growth because the kingdom has come, but we should also expect suffering and pain and loss and lament because the kingdom has not fully been realized. Mm. And I think for us as believers, we have to learn to walk in that tension. Mm. And I, I think everything is so polarizing in our culture right now. Mm. And it's, it's, for us to be able to say um, we keep our eyes on Christ crucified and follow him and we can see God's kingdom growing, expanding uh, in, in powerful ways. And yet it's hard and we're suffering. And so I even think learning to suffer well is, is, is a sign of real Christian maturity and being able to say, I'm taking up my cross I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's suffering, suffering like, like it talks about in the New Testament. Um, and I'm, I'm one with Christ, right? And so I actually, I don't just suffer, I share in his suffering. But like it talks about in Romans 8, we share in his suffering and we will share in his glory. So I, I think that, that li learning to live in that tension is really important and then honestly, this seems really basic, but I think it's so powerful in our in our in the cultural moment that we're in right now, to be a people who are marked by love, and sacrifice, and mm -hmm. mercy, and justice, and those aren't just like generic attributes, right? Mm -hmm. They're not these kind of just like generic things that you strive after. These are things that we truly understand at the foot of the cross. Yes. And, and honestly, that we can't live out apart from the cross. 
if you champion justice, but you have no way of dealing with the injustice in your own heart, then the best thing you can do is you'll just become the oppressor, right? Um, but to be able to say the cross actually changes us from the inside out and can form us into a people who are genuinely loving in a world that's really characterized by hate. We're, we're united as the body of Christ in a world that's divided. Uh, we move forward with compassion and mercy in a world of animosity. Um, that might feel really basic, but it's so powerful right now. And I think that that's what, I think that this is actually an incredible opportunity uh, what we're, for, that the church has right now to be a people um, who are characterized by self-giving love and sacrifice and seeing the dignity of God in all people. And, and for people to say, what, like, why, why do you do that? To be able to say, because we, we follow Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's an incredible opportunity for the church right now. That's awesome, man. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for being with us. And man, I know I found this super encouraging. I'm sure I hope for you as uh, our listeners as well uh, has been. Hey, be on the lookout, Redemption folks. We are trying to get Jeremy out here for a future First Wednesday. So really hoping that we'll come together before too long. Uh, Jeremy, grateful for the work you're doing. Hey, uh, so I highly encourage people to check out The Crucified King. It's a little more I, I, it, it's a little more scholarly, but I, I still think it's very uh, easy to read. It's not mired in jargon or whatever. Uh, but what what's the um, due date? When is, when is your new book anticipated to come out? Well, that's a good question. I'm, I'm, I'm just finishing it up right now. It'll, it's coming out with Crossway. It'll be called The Atonement and Introduction. Um, and I think it'll come out probably, uh, probably like early 2023. Um, nice. Yeah. So I'll get it. It's almost there. Very cool. And you also have a great other book that I forgot to mention earlier, but Seek First uh, on the Kingdom of God. And so I'd highly encourage you folks to check that out. But thanks so much, Jeremy. Looking forward to hopefully having you out here before too long in person with us. Appreciate you. And all our listeners, man, we'll see you next time. Uh, Again, living all of life, all for Jesus. Go in peace. Thanks for listening to this episode of the All of Life podcast. To get more information on Redemption Church Tempe, you can download the Redemption Tempe app or you can send an email to tempe at redemptionaz.com.